0: Welcome back. I'm here today with Marlo Goble. Welcome to today's show. Thank you. So, uh, Marlo, for the listeners, can you give uh, overview of your your background and what brought you up to where you are today? Some of the things that you worked on in life, and I know you've done quite a few things.
1: Well, first of all, I'm a I'm a I'm a father and a and a husband and a grandfather, and I have a great family and. Uh, I'm pleased to be talking to you, but it, it's because I was, I think I was I was raised by a good family, and I had the benefit of being raised by a family that didn't have any resources, didn't have any money. They, my dad was a World War II vet, and uh, came home, discharged in Salt Lake, met my mother, and uh, and uh, he was from Kentucky. Ended up staying in Idaho, and so I became an Idaho boy, and. Uh, and so I got to, I got to learn what I think is important for everyone to learn. Uh, growing up and having to kind of work for everything that was important.
0: Now you, uh, uh, the, from Idaho, you, uh, you you went on and you you were able to do some, uh, yeah, some schooling. Then I understand you also say, played some sports during during college, which uh, became a big part of your life.
1: Yeah, when I was in high school, I, I took care of a potato farm on the Fort Hall Indian Reservation, and so I learned how to take care of myself. I was a pretty good football player for Idaho, yeah, so I tried to use that at Oregon State, but I wasn't that good there, so I didn't get the scholarship I wanted, and uh, so I just went on.
0: But that led you in, into, I guess, moving from Idaho Oregon, was it primarily the football, or what brought you over to Oregon? Yeah.
1: Well, I I had a teacher in high school that talked a lot about Oregon State. It was Oregon State, not Oregon. And Oregon State in 1965 was a big football power. Terry Baker was a Heisman Trophy winner. And so the idea of going to Oregon State was exciting. And I had a scholarship to go to University of Idaho, but Prothor, the coach, was uh, recruited at Oregon State and he asked me to come with him. And so I I'd never been out of Idaho, so I got on a Greyhound bus and went to Corvallis and played football. That's been a big adjustment. I was never so homesick in my life you know
0: <laughs> so you uh so at Oregon state then uh you know you you were there for the football and it didn't quite work out the way you wanted, or what
1: you know I learned that there were guys I was pretty fast, but there were guys thirty pounds bigger than me that was just as fast mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I really uh was a second tier player and I only lasted a year. And then I, uh, I, uh, in the, in the church that I'm a member of, they have a, they have missions. You send you away for two years to help you grow up. And, uh, and so I went away to California on a, uh, LDS, a Mormon mission and, uh, spent two years there. You hey, were, you were in, uh, where, California or Arizona what? Uh, I was in Orange County, San Diego County, and Arizona. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, that, was that a developing or defining moment of your life during that, the, the period of time that you
1: were serving? I think it was a, it was a as I look back, it, it fit in well with where I eventually ended up because it, it, it taught me to take care of myself and to be responsible for my own decisions and to, and to dream.
0: So, so after the mission, you then returned back to school. Was it Oregon State, or where did you uh, end up? I basically
1: returned and went to the University of Utah. Oh, wow. And uh,
0: they're a good medical school, aren't they?
1: They are, but I was an undergraduate then. Okay. But again, I, uh, my family had no money, and so I took a job from midnight till 8 at the Clearfield Steam Plant, which is a, at the Freeport Center, the tax-free area in, in Clearfield, Utah. And so I'd work every night from midnight to eight and then I'd go to school and I'd always show up at class all looking my face full of coal dust. <laughs> <laughs> and uh but I'd do my study at night. And I still have my books, and if you open up my organic chemistry book, it's it's all coal. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, you must have been doing your sleeping during class then or something. I was. Wow. And uh and so I uh but I thought I thought that was normal. I, I enjoyed it. You know, I didn't need any sleep, and uh, I uh, and spent it. And so I uh, I was in. I decided to go to pre med because I, I I was able. I liked chemistry, and uh, uh, so I I did pretty well. And and then I went finished there, and I was accepted at Washington University in St Louis. That was with for the medical degree? Yes.
0: Marlo, I need to take a quick break. I'm visiting here today with Marlo Global, and, uh, and you know, we've been visiting about his, his, his path in life, but Marlo ended up doing something really, really special after he came out of medical school, and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Since you can't take your wealth with you, spend time with your family. Welcome back. I'm here today with Marlo Global and Marlo Weaver talking about the first part of uh, your 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 path in life. uh, coming out from Idaho, uh, working on a farm, jumping over to school, Oregon State, doing an LDS mission. And uh, eventually, when you returned back, you started in a, a pre-med program, eventually ending up at Washington University of St. Louis. So I'm going to fast forward this. So you got your medical degree.
1: Yes. And then what? Well, then um, I went back to the University of Utah for a um, uh, an intern, really a internship in a residency in orthopedic surgery, and Utah was known for its orthopedics, and I was really fortunate. Um, I actually didn't have to do an internship because Washi was such a, a great teaching institution, and I went in without an internship, went right into a residency. But that allowed me to take a year off and do research, and the chairman of the department, it was named Harold Dunn, he, he's a great man, World renowned surgeon. And he needed a research resident. So I took a year off and helped him in uh, surgery. He developed anterior approaches to the spine injuries. And I worked on that. And, and then I developed my own interest in knees. And I worked, we utilized uh, sheep for our surgery. And we did a lot of research. And I spent a whole year just doing that. And that was the key to really the rest of my life.
0: And hmm. you, you you actually uh, developed something there out of the, the knee uh that that a lot of people had benefited from.
1: Yes, in in nineteen seventy-six the anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments were not appreciated. In fact, there were some doctors that called them vestigial, meaning they used to be important in humans, but they weren't anymore. And they certainly were not being repaired. And uh and so I started studying them, and all my resident fellow residents they didn't even know anything about them. So they thought I was wasting my time, but the timing was good, and uh, we, we found that they were important. And I did a lot of strain gauge studies, and we published it in the Journal of Biomechanics with Paul France, who was an engineer, and uh, and we were really the first to look hard at ACLs, and things went fast from then.
0: And so, uh, and so today, I guess, uh, you know, how many patents are you holding? Uh, not only in the artificial lens,
1: but in your research. My research with knees, uh, probably approaching one hundred and forty that are both granted and in the process. Wow! Wow! And
0: uh, and so uh, you've moved on from you were you spent. Time as an active surgery uh, surgeon, doing a lot of uh, surgery and knee replacements, or well, one of this...
1: really the whole spectrum of knees, okay. uh, sports medicine, ligament replacements, and also total knee replacements and uh, minimally invasive total knee reconstruction. And I was uh, all of that area consumed my research time. I'd spend several years in clinical, then I'd take four years off and just do research. I did that three times.
0: How many, uh, how many knee replacements would you guesstimate that have, have taken place as a result of all your
1: research? You know, I, uh, I had a, a really great uh, assistant that just left me recently, who's been with me forever. And she, Becky, she told me that uh, I've done 14,000. <laughs> 14,000? Oh my gosh. <laughs>
0: Well, that's really, and it's evolved since the first one was in, was it 76? I know you started your research, but when was the actual first knee surgery that you did on a human?
1: Well, we, we were doing that in residency, of course, yeah. but that, were my, that I was the responsible surgeon was in, uh, well, I spent a year in Europe doing a fellowship, that's an extra year, and then a year, then time in, in uh, at the Slocum Clinic in Oregon. Uh, this is a time that one chooses a mentor, and, and you get schooled by them, and then, then I came back in Logan, Utah, and at Utah State, I started my practice in about 1983.
0: I'm busy here today with Marlon Goble. He is a uh, renowned surgeon in the area of research. He's accomplished in, in knee, knee replacements, and knee surgery orthopedics. Uh, Marlon, I need to take another break, and we'll be right back after these messages. I love fishing, you know, with my family. I think it would be easier to use a net. It was so much fun. The times when we are together, it makes it all all the more worth it. Having Dad teach them how to, like, cast a fly rod. And... As long as we're doing stuff together, we're having fun. Some people see a father and a son fishing together, while others see a succession plan. Are you actively doing surgeries now, or where, where are you at life right now? What do
1: you? Well, I just turned 70 years old, but I'm pretty healthy. I still participate in the World Games, sprinting and things like that, so I try to stay young. But I'm teaching you now in uh, rural areas, uh, helping people stay home when they for surgery, and it's working out well. I help with uh, teaching about knees in the rural areas in Wyoming, and uh, and I uh, I love doing that, and. Uh, we actually take people from Utah into Wyoming and operate on them. And uh, I have something to do with the teaching of the nurses and the docs. And and so it's a good thing for an aging physician to do. I don't have to spend all my time taking care of the patients. I'm just there for the surgery and the other docs to that.
0: Well, I understand that being in the rural area of uh, Idaho, Wyoming, you also learn to pick up a hobby of fishing.
1: Oh, oh yes, I've always fished. Uh-huh. I love to fish. I love to be in the outdoors and Uh, right now my family's down in Lake Powell and I'm here in the mountains because in the summers I don't go anyplace besides the Rocky Mountains.
0: So if you were advising a person starting out young in their career and kind of looking at, you know, uh, directions of life, what lessons have you learned that that you would pass on to them?
1: I, I... I think I'm doing something wrong when an obstacle comes along. I say, why why isn't it smooth? I mean, I've done everything I think I should, but every time I have a success, something blocks it and interrupts it, and I have to f- make, there's another fight. There's another disappointment that shouldn't be there. And I've I spent a lot of time thinking about that, uh, Alan, and I, um, I don't know what's going on, but... No matter how well I conduct myself or how well I plan, after a success I'm met with an obstacle, a problem. And I don't think I deserve that. And as I talk to people that are a little older than me or that are introspective, they tell me the same thing. I, I, I've got to the point that I, I that I don't believe that it's that life is meant to just go smoothly and we don't like the interruptions because it it pains us and it gives us consternation and we and we have pain either because of things that occur with our family or ourselves or the controversies we get into and then we work it out and if i work it out right then i'm back feeling good that i've um, i have a successful life and then another obstacle comes along
0: so when everything's said and down, how would you define the success in your life?
1: Well, I don't think it's over. And I don't think my, my challenges are over. I think this life is meant to have one challenge after another, and you're supposed to solve them. And uh, uh, different people have different philosophies of why that exists, and uh, nobody's ever completely figured it out, you know, and there are philosophies and religions and sectarian ideas. But, uh, but I really think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very spiritual or religious person, but in terms of understanding why we have to go through these things, uh, I privately am, like Einstein said one day, I'm privately uh, one of the most uh, religious of people because I, I think about those things.
0: There's an interesting part of your life Marlo, about the study of Greek and Roman and Phoenician uh, philosophy that uh, I, I find fascinating. Not many people have delved in this area. So what, what brought you into the, the study of the, the, the ancient
1: philosophies? Some of the things I talked about in the previous segment, I wanted some answers to. So I, I, th- I thought maybe these guys that studied it all their lives, these Greek philosophers, might have thought about these, and indeed, like uh, uh, others have said, you know, there's no place that we have gone that the Greeks haven't already been there. And I, and I read a lot about Winston Churchill, who was a hero of mine, and he studied certain things when he was in India, and they included the Iliad and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, a four book by Edward Gibbons, and so I read that stuff. I learned what elevated language was and why Winston spoke like he did. But I also learned that that these uh, Greek philosophers, especially, have had the same thoughts that I just expressed previously. And they talk about them. And they talk about a lot of things that sometimes as I look at our politicians dealing with world matters, I, I'm not sure they've read the ancient history. <laughs> and yeah. It would be helpful because they've been there. For example, you know, Plato in the Republic, he said... You know, war is the natural state of man. And, uh, humans are pretty mean to each other, and and uh, they they. I think if we spend a little more time realizing that the only difference between us and the people back in Rome and Greece is antibiotics and and uh, gunpowder, otherwise they're the same civilization. They have the same thoughts we have, and. Uh,
0: Did you find that there was a. Uh you know, there's there's often referred to the inner self, the spirituality within, you know, our you know, a, a man that they, uh, the fact that we think alike, even though we're in such a, a vast difference of time, must
1: talk about our our true nature.
0: Yeah, you know?
1: our nature is no different than the ancient peoples you know, and the thoughts that, that indeed they. They had, except for they explained the supernatural by talking about demigods, Zeus and Athena, and they explained things they didn't couldn't explain by the intervention of of, of something they didn't understand. And so, indeed, in, in you know our our look at Christ, you know that yeah. to them he's a demigod. He had an immortal father and a mortal mother. Yeah, that's interesting. So if we if we
0: move into yeah, the questions in my mind of Phoenician? I've never met anyone who's delved into it. Where do you go to study the Phoenicians? <laughs>
1: well, you know, the Iliad really in the 12th century before Christ is the first written uh, material that we really have. And their language is beautiful. You know, they're, uh, they always used to speak in terms of memory and, uh, and the ability to communicate something we don't have. And once we lost, we started writing things. But the Phoenicians were actually before them. And uh, if you go in the islands of Greece, uh, previous to the stories in the Iliad and the Odyssey, it's the Phoenicians that built all of those things, and uh, they're they're they didn't record because we didn't we don't have written things from them, other than uh, here and there, and and the oral stories that are told. So it's, it's it's to learn what the Phoenicians thought isn't as possible as it is with the uh, with Homer and the, what he expressed uh, with the the Greeks and uh, and the alphabet that was brought in by that we adopted from the Egyptians, and when you when you go into that, it puts a understanding of where we are now and why we haven't learned from them, because they've got stories to tell and they explain the answers to a lot of our questions. You know, I'm
0: curious that in the uh in the, in the overview of the Phoenicians. It was a progression with Phoenicians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Yes. And how, uh, yeah, how well educated uh, was it in those societies that the philosophers are usually the, the spokesperson for the, the people? or what? Uh...
1: Philosophers then are a little different than our intellectuals today who really are university-based and they do a lot of thinking, but they, they don't really have a lot of experience, a lot of them. It was common in the Greek time that their philosophers, the leaders, were at once great generals. And uh, the Roman the Greeks, gave, and so are the Romans, they gave, gave primary respect to victory with hand-to-hand combat. And Socrates was a great com- combatant. He wielded a broadsword, and he was he was quite a fighter. And so the people respected these people. Uh, not just because they could think, but they had proved themselves. Something we don't require. Somehow.
0: I've been visiting here today with Dr. Marlo Global, and uh, we're out of time today on today's show. But uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks for being here on American Dreams and join us next week, right here.